is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. It is lovely to have your company on this Sunday afternoon. We've got some good stuff coming up in the next half hour, so do stay tuned. We'll get some teen entrepreneurial spirit with Jesse Nadler's report on a youth entrepreneurship workshop at BRCC. We'll meet a Shenandoah University professor who studies what he calls brain tingles and why we get them. Think Bob Ross, Mr. Rogers, soothing whispers, that sort of thing. And getting ever closer to the November elections, we'll check in again with Jeff Shapiro for a survey of Virginia politics. But first, after the deadly white supremacist rally last year in Charlottesville, two grad students in history at the University of Virginia are trying to bridge the divide between academia and the rest of the city by starting a monthly community conversation on far-right and fascist groups. WMRA's Marguerite Gallerini and 10 others sat in on the first workshop of the far-right and anti-fascism group. How can we read current events such as August 12 in Charlottesville with a historical lens? More broadly, how can we create a safe and open space to talk about fascism and anti-fascism? Natasha Roth-Rowland and Charles Hamilton are two doctoral students in history at UVA. They have created a monthly workshop open to all students and to the public to discuss just that. You know, it's a very common refrain that you know racism doesn't go away, it just adapts to the society that it's in. Um, and I think failing to tease that out in public discourse and in education I don't think directly puts us where we are, but it facilitates the gradual normalization of politics and social development where this kind of resurgence of fascism and authoritarianism becomes possible. I mean, certainly my hope, and I think I speak for Natasha as well, that we're providing the the tools to understand this movement in a historical context, because it's not, there are things that are new, but it's not fundamentally new. There is this history to it, and that's what we're trying to tease out. We're trying to see what from history and from related disciplines can we use to understand our our current times in this situation better. Charles studies queer anti-fascism and the far right in 20th century Europe with a focus on Britain, France and Germany. He talked about the wave of fascism that hit Europe in the mid-1970s following a lot of fear-mongering aimed at immigrants and refugees, much like what they say is happening now in the U.S. The elephant in the room, which sort of was discussed quite early on, is is what happened in in Charlottesville uh, last year, specifically at neo-Nazis, bringing a tremendous amount of violence to the streets in Charlottesville um, and lack of sufficient action on the part of the police. This inaction also rings a bell from the past. Here's Charles talking about what came to be known as the Battle of Wood Green in Britain on April 23, 1977, when fascists and anti-fascists clashed in the streets of this London suburb. 74 of the 81 people arrested are anti-fascists, and the police actually, similar to what happened here, were not able to keep the group separated, so there was just fights in the streets and reports that the police actually defended the National Front in fights because they viewed them as the victims. These workshops, which are funded by the Power and Violence Inequality Collective, will be held each month in various locations, either on UVA grounds or elsewhere in Charlottesville. The meetings will culminate in a conference next spring. Soon, within the next few weeks, we'll be putting out uh, a call for people who are interested in possibly being on those panels. Uh, We want to hear from them, so that'll be out soon.
I think part of the emphasis on having somewhat of a public profile is just to try and open up access and visibility to what we're doing because you know it can sometimes feel a little bit academic ivory tower but as much as we can we want that to be able to on some level interface with a lot of the really really incredible organizing um, and activism that's been going on here in the past year by people of color queer people housing rights activists etc etc so we want to try and develop contact um, in whatever way we can for WMRA News, I'm Marguerite Gallerini. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Also this month, scores of teen wannabe Elon Musks and Sheryl Sandbergs from across the region convened at Blue Ridge Community College to take part in a two-day youth entrepreneurship workshop. WMRA's Jesse Nadler was there to capture the teen spirit and learn how to think more like an entrepreneur. Are you a hustler, a hacker, or an artist? That's the question 150 young people had to answer at the beginning of the two-day startup experience. Based on their answers, the kids were sorted into groups comprised of the three types. Goths paired with athletes, kids in camouflage mixed with those wearing suits and ties. Each hodgepodge team had to identify a bunch of problems and turn one into an opportunity for a new startup company. If you are looking at the problem of the lack of good math education, the project was facilitated by this energetic Danish guy named Heinrich Scheel. He lives in Silicon Valley and conducts these workshops all over the world. I sort of started out eight years ago with this idea that we need to have more young entrepreneurs solve real big problems around the world. Many of the problems the kids came up with were huge. World poverty, hunger, global warming. Some were disgustingly common, like what is up with all the pee on toilet seats? 15-year-old Malachi Johnson from Harrisonburg took the lead in his group. Important problems that we've come up with would be truck line spots, student back problems, procrastination. It was a grab bag of issues. Local entrepreneurs such as Peter Denby were on hand to encourage the teens. Denby is co-founder of the co-working space, the Stanton Innovation Hub. They don't know any better. They're not jaded yet. They're like, oh yeah, I can solve world hunger. No problem. And that's awesome. And so the challenge is helping them get focused enough so that it actually is attainable, but not biasing them too much and not saying, oh no, you can't do that, because that's, that's the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Once students identified a problem, they then had to figure out how to go about solving it. Here's Heinrich Scheel again. We then form business models around those ideas, and then we send them out of the building. Out of the building to talk to customers, to do market research, and figure out whether this idea is actually viable. In two days? In two days and finally learning how to pitch their idea. So we'll have a sort of a Shark Tank type uh, panel for tomorrow afternoon. Kathy Deacon is the executive director of the Stanton Creative Community Fund. It helps small businesses get going. She's the one who brought in Shield to conduct the workshop. Statistically, what will happen now is that when students graduate in four years with a degree and an idea of what they want to do for a job, that job is probably no longer going to exist because of the exponential change that's happening in our society now. Deacon points to the coming automation and artificial intelligence revolution. It's expected to render many, some have even said millions of jobs, obsolete. She says students can't train simply to be workers anymore. They have to be idea generators and problem solvers. Kids in the workshop came from 12 different high schools in five different districts around Rockingham and Augusta counties. And anyone who wanted to participate was welcome. Entrepreneurs come in all shapes and sizes and colors and, you know, flavors and don't have to be an A student. And in fact, 
what research and study has shown is the A students are typically the ones that the traditional path fits them better. Deacon's goal is to make such startup initiatives commonplace in the Valley. The reason why I took this opportunity to join this program was because my, I myself want to become an entrepreneur because I'm also working on my fashion brand. 17-year-old Savon Lewis from Stanton was part of the workshop. He had on a pair of jeans he painted himself. He plans to make his living selling clothes, art, and music. You know, an entrepreneur. This course has taught me not to really judge the first impression off of, like, the people you're going to be surrounded with, because I didn't think I was going to like these group of people when I first got placed into this group, but they're pretty cool. They're pretty open-minded. They're pretty diverse, pretty unique individuals, and uh, they're pretty cool. I like it. This up-and-coming fashion designer and his eclectic team, they decided to pitch an idea about correcting blind spots on semi-trucks on the highway. For WMRA News, I'm Jesse Nadler. Is there a certain sound that gives you chills or makes you really relaxed or maybe makes you feel so good that it gives you goosebumps? Well, if so, you may be experiencing Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, or ASMR for short. Dr. Craig Richard, a professor at Shenandoah University in Winchester, has been studying this phenomenon for years, and he's released a new book about it. It's called Brain Tingles. Dr. Richard spoke with WMRA's Chris Boros about how people react to ASMR. It's definitely a deeply relaxing feeling that has these pleasurable brain tingles. But it's also bizarre because of how it's stimulated. And you may be familiar with these ASMR videos, which have just almost taken over YouTube. And in these videos, there's people that are pretending to be clinicians, or they're pretending to be a hairdresser, and they're interacting with the camera in a way that makes it seem like you're having this experience. And I'm just gonna hop in your hair so I can cut the bottom first. And what they're doing in those videos is they're mimicking personal moments of caring attention, like something you'd receive at a spa, or even that kind of attention that Bob Ross would give the camera while it was painting his joy of painting paintings. There we go. Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like that. And let's paint several little happy trees and push. Look at there. You mentioned in your book that a lot of people experience this by accident. How did you discover this? Yeah, I, I was listening to a podcast, and the episode was about ASMR. And so I was about to turn the episode off and not listen because it just sounded like something that was made up. But then they gave this example of people who watch Bob Ross's Joy of Painting TV show. When they watch it, they get deeply relaxed. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 29th Joy of Painting series. And that made me realize that I remember being a kid, coming home from school, I'd turn on Bob Ross, I'd put down a floor pillow, and he would just turn my brain into this blissful state with these head tingles. It wasn't just the things he said, it was the way he said them. Right, right. It's his whole disposition. Your brain is interpreting everything he's doing as that he is a very kind individual who's trying to help you somehow. And your brain experiences all that as you're in a safe situation with someone trying to help you. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, <laughs> and just beat the devil out of them. 
What are some of the most popular triggers for people to experience ASMR? From most research studies where they asked participants, you know, what is your favorite or what is your strongest trigger? The most commonly reported trigger is whispering. For WMRA News, I'm Bob Levicky. People love whispering. This is All Things Considered. I'm Kimberly Daggy. And what our initial studies are showing is that it's actually light touch might be the strongest trigger, which also makes sense because we are very picky and choosy about who touches us. And so that has to be a trusting situation. So it's not just audio then, it's touch. You talk about scenario is another one in your book. Yeah, there's clearly audio triggers there, just listening to people whisper, listening to people crinkle and tap. There's visual triggers, slow movements, a little tilt of the head, authentic and genuine smiles, all those kind of participate in the ASMR experience. Oh, that's interesting. Smiles. Yeah, I, I never thought about that before, but you're right. When you see a smile, there is this feeling you get when you see that. Yeah, and it has to be genuine because if, it's, if your brain doesn't process the smile as genuine, we have a word for that, and it's creepy. <laughs> what is your favorite ASMR? I like whispering. I find whispering the most soothing, and because I mostly use ASMR to help me fall asleep, that one works the best for me because of when I use it. So what I'll do is I'll put on an ASMR podcast, and I love ones that have whispering. And it doesn't even matter what language the whispering's in, because it's not what they're saying. It's the sound of someone whispering. So there's, there's one podcast I listen to. It's in Korean language. And I, I have no idea what they're whispering about, but I'll put that on and it just turns my brain to fuzz and I just fall asleep much easier that way. If you had to choose the most important effect that ASMR can have on people, what would you choose? It's relaxation. And we see that in our research studies. We see that in other published research studies. And so the benefit of that is de-stressing. Well, Dr. Richard, I really appreciate this. I think I'm gonna go watch some Bob Ross videos right now. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Craig Richard. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you, Chris. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Let's go over to the canvas here and let's get started. I believe, I believe, every day's a good day when you paint. I believe, I believe, it'll bring a lot of good thoughts to your heart. Yeah, then let's wash your old brush. Give him a shake <laughs> and just beat the devil out of him. You should check out some of the mashups with Bob Ross and Mr. Rogers and stuff from The Reading Rainbow. You'll find it on YouTube. It's, it's crazy. There is a longstanding public debate about whether private school students truly have an academic edge over students attending public schools. A recent study from the University of Virginia has an answer. WCVE's Megan Pauley reports. Researchers at the University of Virginia followed a group of more than 1,000 kids from birth through ninth grade. About half attended public school and the other half private. Bob Pianta is dean of the Curry School of Education. He says that surface-level data did show benefits of attending private school, but... Once you took into consideration the economic and education background of the families uh, of those children, then those uh, apparent benefits uh, really just disappeared. Pianta says they found no evidence to suggest low-income children benefited more from private school enrollment. 
Megan Polly, WMRA News. Well, the midterm congressional elections and some local elections are just a little more than two weeks away. So let's turn now to a discussion of Virginia politics with Richmond Times-Dispatch columnist uh, Jeff Shapiro. Here talking with WCVE's Craig Harper. Jeff, this week, Republican Congressman Dave Bratt and his Democratic opponent, Abigail Spanberger, met in Culpeper for their first and likely only televised debate. This contrast between the two candidates was not confined to style. These candidates are resorting to very different techniques to reach very different audiences. Perhaps most memorable that evening's engagement was the invocation by Congressman Bratt 25 times by the Spanberger campaign's count of Nancy Pelosi, the House Democratic minority leader, a past speaker and a prospective speaker should the Democrats take back the House. This is clearly an attempt at code by the congressman to arouse, alarm, and energize his base. Spanberger was having nothing of it, of course, reminding anyone who was listening and watching that this was not her pick for Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, that is, what she was clearly trying to do, she, uh, Spanberger, that is, trying to reach to a broader audience. Clearly, Spanberger's chances for victory in this district, one that went relatively easily for Trump and before that, Ed Gillespie, for governor, is to broaden the pool of participants. One measure of that, the evening after the debate, Spanberger was down in Chesterfield County at an event tailored to Latin voters, Hispanic Virginians. In a place like Chesterfield County, they now make up nearly 10 percent of the population. A reminder that the diversity of Virginia that for so often seems confined to the Washington suburbs is deeply rooted here in central Virginia as well. And this week, WCVE's Ben Pavier returned from Chesterfield with an unusual report on Congressman Bratt. Unusual indeed. This was intended by the Bratt campaign to call attention to the opioid crisis and the congressman's apparent concerns about it. He was visiting, uh, as you say, at the Chesterfield jail, meeting with inmates, discussing with them the challenges that they face, for example, on release to the outside world. And then all of a sudden, Bratt started talking about some of his challenges, principally being attacked by millions of dollars in negative ads, primarily posted by the Spanberger allies, and making this campaign clearly a thing of discomfort for the Republican. Bratt playing the victim card, I would suggest, is a sign that Bratt is very much rattled by this campaign. And money is flowing in fast and furious to Democratic congressional challengers throughout Virginia, even those considered long shots of sorts. The four Democratic challengers in the races that are most closely monitored by the outside world, as well as those of us here in Virginia, all of them outraised their Republican opponents. That includes three incumbents. Spanberger, by the way, led all the candidates. This is, as you say, another sign of Democratic energy. In addition to Spanberger piling up the uh, jack, there was Elaine Luria in the second district of Hampton Roads, Jennifer Wexton up in northern Virginia at uh, Virginia 10, and Leslie Coburn in the fifth congressional district. That's in the uh, Blue Ridge. That's an open seat. It would have been defended by Tom Garrett had he decided to stand for re-election again after a single term. His departure, of course, somewhat dramatic, citing a drinking problem. By the way, Spanberger's total 
fundraising has exceeded Dave Bratt's roughly two to one. Amazing, considering that Bratt is an incumbent, but clearly an indication that the smart money, or at least the Democratic money that fancies itself smart, is placing some heavy bets on her. These four Democratic challengers, by the way, all of them are heading into the closing weeks of the campaign with more money on hand than their Republican opponents. We cannot discuss fundraising without discussing a surprising appearance (laughs) planned for this weekend by the Vice President of the United States. Mike Pence is coming into Richmond to help raise money for Ryan McAdams, who was the Republican candidate in the 4th District. It runs from the Richmond area down across the south side and east to Chesapeake. It's represented, of course, by Democrat Donald McEachin. Ryan McAdams is considered the longest of long shots, but apparently the vice president is coming in here in part, having been tugged on a bit by Bob McDonald, the former governor, and his sister Maureen, both of whom remain very active in Republican politics. And another measure of Democratic energy, a spike in early absentee voting. Yes, statewide up nearly 60 percent. In the 7th District so far, a 92 percent increase from a year ago. There are a lot of people who would say that this is uh, good for the Democrats, particularly in the 7th, as we discussed earlier, Spanberger's chances come down in large part to getting more people to participate. And Medicaid enrollment begins November 1st, the reality of what had been a promise by Democrats, but blocked by Republicans until they had a change of heart in 2017. Yes, getting a little religion after their political lives flashed before their eyes in the 2017 elections. Of course, the Republican majority in the House nearly wiped out once two to one, now only two seats. As a result, the Republican Speaker Kirk Cox coming up with a deal under which there would be something that resembled a work requirement for expanded Medicaid benefits, if you will, for those uninsured. The state is seeking approval of this so-called work for benefits requirement. And while that is still working its way through the application process, the people who could use health insurance should start queuing up. Just a a note, if you are single with a salary of just under $17,000 a year, you would qualify for this expanded Medicaid program. If yours is a family of three with an income of just under $29,000, you would also qualify. Thanks to Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Have a great weekend. Support for WMRE's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Ham and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor led by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg and Rockingham County. You'll find all our stories archived at WMRA.org. To support local news on WMRA, go to the website, Mouse Over News, then click on News and Information Fund. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRE's News Director and Morning Edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. <laughs>